0: episode is brought to you by Fangoria Magazine. This year Fangoria Magazine is turning 40 years old and celebrating accordingly. If you haven't checked out the latest Fangoria issues, prepare to be blown away. It's now a deluxe 100 page quarterly edition with glossy thick pages and articles and interviews that will never be published online. The only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because the experience deserves to be a surprise. But We can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. They're definitely celebrating their 40th in style. Head over to Fangoria.com and learn more and subscribe today. You can use promo code NIGHTMARE to get 15% off your subscription. So head over to Fangoria.com and use promo code NIGHTMARE for 15% off your new subscription. Crawl is out now on digital. Sink your teeth into this year's most intense horror film that critics are calling entertaining as hell. Producer Sam Raimi, the horror mastermind behind Don't Breathe and the Evil Dead movies, teams up with director Alexandra Aja of The Hills Have Eyes to bring you this relentless, nerve-rattling creature feature. Crawl combines your most primal human fears, confined spaces, fear of drowning, and an onslaught of could-be-anywhere alligators. Certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, Get the action pack thriller with a nasty bite on digital now. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. Hello and welcome to Nightmare University. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry. For this particular episode, I wanted to stick with something that was kind of central to the Halloween season that we're entering now. And I've done the past, um, I did the past episode on haunted houses and haunted attractions. And so then I started thinking, well, what else is going on around the Halloween season that I do a lot of? And it's always movie screenings. I go to a ton of movie screenings around the Halloween season, many of them retro screenings. Sure, I will go go see whatever the kind of hot Halloween new movie releases. But additionally, this is the time when I will go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a theater, even though that I've seen it umpteen hundreds times before, I will go see it in a theater because it's a communal experience. And a lot of times these screenings are held at midnight. And a lot of times I'll also go to marathon screenings where they will start at 9 PM and go all the way to 9 AM. And there, there are these crazy screenings where they'll show movies back to back. And so then I started thinking about kind of the history of these marathon shows and also the history of midnight screenings. And it all goes back to the history of cult media. So I thought for today's episode that we would dig into the history of cult media, kind of where did it start and and where is it going and where is it headed now that we have um, a complete change in viewing patterns with the entrance of VOD markets. So I could do an entire podcast on just what is cult media alone? Like the actual definition of cult media is incredibly messy and something that is still being argued constantly. And I do have to say that we have come to kind of view uh, the word cult negatively um, as if it means that, you know, you're mentally changing or you're being forced to do something. And um, though I'm sure that is the case in some instances, I do not use it negatively in regards to media. It's a wonderful experience. It's a community experience. It is a feeling of belonging and knowing that other people like the same thing that you do or they don't. And you're celebrating it because you're trying to convince other people to see it. And that is beautiful that you find that much passion in in a media product. And so in this sense, I don't view it negatively. I additionally, I view football as a cult media because people are so passionate about that. I view wrestling as cult media. There's many things that are cult media beyond just kind of our normal understanding of it being underground transgressive paracinema. It goes much more than that. For me, cult media is defined by the history. And it's something where the history of cult media happened and then later somebody went Back and called it cult media. Like we were not calling it cult media while these events were going on. We later retrospectively looked at it and then said, Oh, well, let's call this type of film that. It's not necessarily something um, that, that you know we were identifying as it was occurring. And it's constantly changing. I first started doing a lot of research into cult media while I was working on my PhD in grad school. And a lot of my dissertation is focused on um, cult media marketing tactics. And so a lot of the research that that I did into the history of cult media was during that time period. It was only five years ago. And even still, the amount of theories and practices within cult media and kind of how people view it has changed so drastically over the five years and still is changing. Many of the recent changes have happened because of two things. The first one is the acceptance of geek culture where it suddenly became cool to be into cult media. It's something that became cool nationwide. Um, The fact that you could go into Target and that there would be a giant display as soon as you walk in of Marvel stuff, something that previously was viewed as a cult media, but is now of widespread appeal. And it became cool to be into these things. That definitely um, made it a little bit messier, which I'll talk about in a sec. And then the second thing that really changed cult media's definition and still is, is the idea of the viewing, Um, that if everything is available to everyone all the time online, can you still have cult media? Um, Does cult media have to be something that's hard to find, that's elusive? And if it's available to everyone at all time, does cult media still exist? And so I'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. And so tonight's episode will go outside of the horror genre a bit. But I do have to say a huge portion when we look back through the history of cult media, a huge portion of it is horror. And a huge amount of the movies that I myself have cult-like obsessions with are, of course, horror. So the ones that I'll be using within the examples are primarily horror. So ultimately, you know, what is cult media? Well, most people kind of view it as movies that fight the mainstream, movies that are transgressive and not just movies. It goes to books, it goes to comics, it goes to television show, it's media in general. That's not mainstream. It fights against what we think of as mainstream. Whatever is, you know, kind of the most vanilla thing that is happening in the market right now, this fights it somehow. It's transgressive. It's not playing at a mall near you, or maybe it is playing at a mall near you and no one goes to see see it. And then 10 years later, you're still championing it as kind of an unsung hero. Or maybe everybody goes to see it and it becomes a mass cult phenomena like Marvel or The Walking Dead. And this gets further conflated again with the birth of geek culture when kind of everybody starts celebrating something. Is it no longer cult or did we all just join the cult? And see, already the definition is incredibly messy. But let's go ahead and break it down into three areas. There's kind of three areas that most people um, look to when they look at cult media. And the first two are combined together. And this is the idea that it is rediscovered, And repurposed. And this is what we see with a lot of older media. um, Media from the 1930s that we're going to talk about in a sec like hygiene films or even like after school specials from the 1980s that they they happened in one form. They then kind of fell asleep and nobody paid attention to them for a while. And then a decade or two later they are rediscovered and repurposed meaning they suddenly become funny. They suddenly become amusing. And a lot of times it's for... um, a different group, you know, like it's being rediscovered by this different group of people than they were originally intended. And the third kind of rule that goes along with cult media is that the product elicits a further response than just viewing the show or reading the book, that it's something that you love so much that you become encouraged to take some additional step. You follow the stars online, you start following the director, you read the blog posts, you buy the supernatural t-shirt, you hang up a supernatural poster, and then you're going to the supernatural convention. But there's no real firm understanding about when do you make that jump to being now a member of that kind of media cult. If you just tell your friends that the show's really awesome and try to encourage them to watch it, does that make it cult media? Once somebody's buying the shirt, once a bunch of people are buying the shirt, what if it's literally just one guy who loves this movie and makes his own shirt? Is that a cult media? Does it have to have more than one people in the cult? And can it be a cult if everyone loves it? Or does it stop being a cult and transition into just a plain old vanilla media? Or is it always a cult, but just a cult that everybody can be in? Is Star Wars still cult media? I always consider it so no matter how many theme parks they build towards it or how how many, you know, movies they turn out in a row. I still always view Star Wars as cult media just because of the amount of people who dress up like it and the the um, kind of response that it elicits in fans and people making their own props and making up their own mythos about it. Like it still garners this cult reaction no matter how giant it gets. I also look at Stranger Things. When Stranger Things first season aired... It was definitely, um, it was popular, but it was a lot smaller. And it wasn't, I didn't become aware of how big kind of the media cult around it had grown until I bought a pair of sweatpants that they were selling at Target. I bought Stranger Things sweatpants. And then I suddenly realized that these were being carried in targets across the nation. And if it gets to be this big, where literally the biggest, one of the biggest box stores in America is selling an entire clothing line for it, does this negate it as a media cult? Does it at this point just become popular media. Again, these are super heady arguments for a later show, but for now, we're just going to look at kind of the history of cult media and how did the concept of cult media emerge and when did we first start seeing things like midnight screenings. So even with a great comprehensive definition of what qualifies as cult media, there's a huge amount of quarreling over film historians about what marks the starting point. There's really not one concise moment when cult media began, rather a kind of a series of important events that gradually led up to the emergence of cult phenomenon. So let's dive into the history and perhaps the definition will become clearer or maybe not. Who knows? But let's go with the history for now. So what was the first cult film? A lot of film theorists point to Louis Boonwell's Unchon Andalou as kind of the first cult motion picture. This is a series of set pieces conjoined with a really loose plot. It's super surreal, but it really did break up kind of the normal manufacturing practices of the studio at the time. It definitely is transgressive in that it feels kind of violent. There's this wonderful trick photography that they do to make it look like they're slashing a woman's eyeball open. Um, A lot of it is really visually unsettling. But was this the first cult film? It's subversive, it's working against accepted media patterns, but I never really view this as a cult film just because it never really garnered a cult. It was weird, it's respected as a high art film and definitely was considered to be highbrow cinema by the 1960s, but it never really evoked a mass reaction outside of the original viewing. There were never people, you know, really wearing unshan Andalou t-shirts in mass and there was never really, you know, Boonwell Con 1973 or anything like that. So even though that this was definitely one of the weirdest films that kind of broke out of just being, you know, an underground film and got a lot more um, acclaim, I'm not sure if it's a cult film exactly. Film historians also have pointed to Maya Darren and Kenneth Anger as the first cult filmmakers. And once again, there's some slippage here between the actual films and how they kind of resonated within the audience. Their films are super underground, transgressive, highly influential. But it was definitely a long time before they kind of became Cult heroes. Like even now in 2019, I myself own a Maya Darren t shirt. But she, when she was making films in the 1940s, was not necessarily celebrated in quite that way. It didn't happen until decades later, until I would say the 70s and 80s, is when they kind of really started to emerge. And same with Kenneth Anger. And so Stan Brackage is another one that people point to. And again, you have to kind of say, what type of reaction has to be garnered in order for it to be cult. He definitely has cult appeal. You know, they're high underground, highbrow art films but at the same time did it ever really have this kind of cult appeal? Stan Brakhage I can definitely say I consider to be a cult hero. Um, Maybe not necessarily his films being the first cult cult films. They were transgressive and underground but he himself became kind of a cult hero. He was always celebrated by film students who for decades had been kind of silently celebrating him as one of the rather unsung film gods. But then um, South Park gave him one of the purest examples of a cult phenomenon. In 1993, the South Park creators um, gave Stan Brackage a cameo in their movie Cannibal the Musical. And this act of kind of casting him in this wink-wink role really does push him as a cult figure. Linking him um, much more, linking him as a hero himself more so than to a specific film. And this is very much like Eli Roth casting Takashi Mike in Hostile Sue. For the small number of fans who watch these films and kind of realize who that is that's cast in that role, it's winking at them. It's a wonderful little inside cult joke that's missed by uninformed, non-savvy movie attendees who aren't inside the cult. And thus, those of us who get it are kind of rewarded visually and mentally for our geeky film knowledge. I'll also give some acknowledgement to the hygiene films that were put out in the 1930s and 40s. Um, As financial struggles were completely rampant across the nation, many folks found enough money to attend picture shows. And some of the most popular films during this time period were hygiene films, which in order to squirt um, moral motion picture production codes that were going on at the time period, These movies had to be presented as educational documentaries. Ultimately, they were still sex films. They showed genitalia. They showed childbirth. They showed lots of diseases. Um, Some of them were about child brides, um, but they were presented as educational material. And then a lot of these um, kind of will get rediscovered, which I talked about previously, the act of rediscovering something by future fans with a completely different understanding. To future audiences, these films were not moralistic educational guides, but straight exploitation films utilizing innovative and often hokey kind of tactics to display the human body um, for everybody to see. And these films would eventually become collector's items. I remember when um, something weird did like a massive pack releasing them in the 1990s. But again, these have this kind of element of rediscovery. But the one that I really point to as being one of the first really, you know, I could point at it and be like, oh, yeah, that's a cult film, was 1936's Reefer Madness. And Reefer Madness fell into the same category as the hygiene films, where it was made during a government kind of propagated nationwide drug scare of the 1930s. And it was made as an educational film to try to teach the youth of a America, the evils of marijuana. And so it was a straight up propaganda film shot in 1936, largely funded by a church group seeking a manner to explain the dangers of marijuana to impressionable young teens. And so they hired Lou gaznier to direct, um, and he had a giant track record of making um, kind of sinful cinema, mostly of the exploitation fair um, and equipped with an unheard of cast. They set out to kind of make this moralistic tale of demon weed. The film earned minor success on the exploitation circuit throughout the third. 30s and 40s before really falling off the face of the earth. And for decades, it completely slumbered. But then Reefer Madness was rediscovered and ultimately reborn in the 1970s when the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, also known as NORML, found a print of Reefer Madness and began screening it all around as a fundraiser. But audiences were no longer receiving this as a moralistic tale. It was now an unintentional, over-the-top comedy. And new audiences were giggling as Jimmy became a raving maniac after two puffs. They also now found it completely absurd how, in an uncomfortably direct way, the actors stare straight into the camera and demand that you tell your children all about marijuana. And so after hearing that Reefer Madness was swiftly becoming a hit with a whole new generation, then fledgling distributor company New Line sought out the rights. And after purchasing and restoring the film, they began hosting midnight screenings of it nationwide, making Reefer Madness one of the first big money makers for that company. Reefer fans began seeking out some of the now aged actors and asking them questions. And by the 1990s, Reefer Madness was a standard midnight screening at colleges across America. Books were written about the shooting. There were interviews with the cast and crew. Reefer Madness t-shirts were easy to come by. And even I myself had a very ironic Reefer Madness poster hanging in my dorm room in college. But... I look at that one as the first one because it's kind of the first time that we can see this mass shift happen and that the the kind of celebratory nature of it expands from just kind of a group of film students celebrating this unknown filmmaker to the film taking on a whole new level and kind of expanding to just as big as it was before. So the next instance that I'll look at is in the 1950s. By the 1950s, the court rulings had disintegrated the vertical integration that were kind of giving the studios their stronghold. And it allowed a lot of room for independent film production houses to come in and flourish. Post-war affluency and the teens of the 1950s definitely took solace from their suburban homes at drive-ins, watching independently made aliens attack the world. And whereas many cult movies kind of disappeared and were later reused, born under a different guise, these sci-fi B-films of the 1950s never went anywhere. They were received with enthusiasm by loyal fans then, and many of them immediately sought out further merchandise, paraphernalia, toys, models, books, and monster magazines, during the 1950s into the 60s, some of the classic movie monsters like Dracula and Wolfman also acquired large cult-like devotions through these growing number of monster magazines. Even some international titles like 1954's Godzilla entered the scene with a large-scale fanatical following. And even though that these were not recognizable as, quote, media cults at the time period, just the avid fan bases and the leisurely kind of rise and fervor of the fans' devotion make them really principal minded Milestones in cult movie history. And still today, horror conventions across the world are saturated with books, toys, shirts, and even purses devoted to these 1950s sci-fi flicks. Surviving cast and crew often make appearances, sign autographs, talk about the film industry of the past. And the squeaky clean image of some of these films and often the cheesiness and lower budgets of them has been later rediscovered and repurposed by fans. For instance, Ed Wood and The Love of Plan 9, the Love of Manos Hands of Fate, or even even the advent of MST3K decades after the release of some of these. So let's talk a little bit about The Midnight Movie. Even going all the way back to the 1930s and 40s, controversial cinema was often shown at midnight. Filmmakers like, for instance, Kenneth Anger in the 40s would often host midnight screening parties as a more intimate way to exhibit their movies. The late night scheduling gave their films a certain mystique and evaded morally critical eyes. Midnight just feels mysterious and transgressive. You already feel like you are somehow breaking a societal code just by going to a screening then and watching a movie when you quote shouldn't be. The term midnight movie actually began in the 1950s when TV stations would air low budget horror films often accompanied with horror hosts and colorful commentary. The theatrical midnight movie flourished during the early 1970s and this was what would be essential to cult history. It's thought that the first official midnight movie, meaning that it was marketed as a midnight movie theatrically, was Kenneth Anger's My Demon Brother, which screened at New York City's Elgin Theater in the late 1960s. The Elgin followed this two years later with midnight screenings of Jodorowsky's surrealistic Western El Topo. The New York Times even noted in 1971 coverage of the film that the midnight screenings had somehow become a, quote, secret rite of some importance in New York City, end quote. And right there, the New York Times is nailing it. They are hitting the nail on the head that these midnight screenings become some type of secret rite, that it's that in itself sounds cult like that. It's this like secret meeting of a group of people that is somehow a rite of passage. And that is what they were becoming at the time period. Seeing the success of the Kenneth Anger and the El Topo screenings, the Elgin began regularly screening these films at midnight, touting that they were too extreme for normal daytime audiences to watch. This was most likely an advertising gimmick. In actuality, the too extreme gimmick had been used for decades by exploitation cinemas to attract an audiences. And certainly, if you were so inclined to watch extreme cinema at like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday, you could just pop yourself up to Times Square, which was a mecca of filmic sin. But it worked. And the idea of these two extreme midnight movies really stuck. In reality, by showing these films at midnight, the theater was just adding more ticket sales during a time when they would have otherwise have been closed. The theater also selected non-mainstream films and played up the element of kind of the countercultural transgressive viewings. They realized that there was something special about seeing a rare and controversial film under the cover of darkness instead of seeing it in broad daylight. Aura and the charisma of a midnight movie had been established and that there was some type of shared mystical experience within the audience, that they were part of some rare, extraordinary viewing experience that no one else who would go see movies during the daytime would understand. And that right there is one of my other kind of key points of what cult media is. This bonding feeling amongst the cult fans is a crucial element to something being cult media. The fans must feel like they belong to something larger than themselves. The same feeling that you get when you go to a horror convention or you're geeking out with your friend about the latest episode of a show or you're so excited to see Stranger Things sweatpants at Target. You feel suddenly like your fandom, your passion is part of something just bigger than you that you're part of a group that others understand this. Often during this time, midnight movie titles were older selections being presented for rediscovery amongst fans. Reefer Madness was a regular one on the circus, Sex Magnus from 1938, Freaks from 1932, and Blood Feast from 1963 were also commonly screened. By the early 1970s, a number of other New York City theaters had taken notice of the Elgin success and began hosting their own midnight screenings. Some of the other notable ones are the St. Mark's Theater, which frequently screened late night Louis Boonewell Picks The Waverly, which had titles like Night of the Living Dead and Equinox, and The Bijou, which also screened Night of the Living Dead and Freaks on Rotation. The Waverly set records when it began screening the Rocky Horror Picture Show in January of 1977. Rocky Horror would not only go on to become one of the most well-known cult films, but it's but done more midnight screenings than any other film in history. With a plotline focusing on the element of repurposing and celebrating the aforementioned sci-fi films of the 1950s, Rocky Horror also made cult history for the audiences involved in this film. Who became completely involved in the movie, calling back lines to the film, acting out scenes, dancing, and bringing props to use or throw at patrons. And I encourage all movie fans to go see a midnight screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Whether or not you love the movie, whether or not you love musicals, or you love the movies that the movie inspired, which are all the 1950s B monster movies, there is something truly magical about seeing Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight and seeing an entire audience of people who know exactly what to do at any given moment and know the lines and know the dances, not because they took a class, but because they themselves were ushered into this cult by somebody else that it has grown as a truly cult phenomenon. As midnight movies grew in popularity, many of the New York City post-war audiences clamored for more extreme content. They wanted the midnight movies to actually be too extreme and the campy kitschy fare like Reefer Madness and Freaks were not necessarily meeting that demand. So several theaters turned to art communities and began displaying debaucheries of all varieties in their midnight slots. And we see Andy Warhol, John Waters and Joy Dorowski kind of step in to fill that need. By the early 1980s, art films like David Lynch's Eraserhead were now reaching much larger audiences due in part to these midnight screenings which had now become a nationwide trend. Even small towns that did not previously boast a CD exploitation theater, they would sometimes show midnight movies, meaning people even in small towns could see things like The Evil Dead and The Liquid Sky as long as they were willing to wait up until midnight. Thus increasing the likelihood of the title generating a cult following by creating a feeling of unity amongst this small group of viewers who were willing to stay up till midnight to see Liquid Sky. Then enters the V PCR. By the early 1980s, an escalating number of American families owned a VCR. No longer was there a need to constantly attend movie theaters when movies could just be viewed in the comfort of your own home. You didn't have to stay up till midnight, and you didn't have to go see these kind of questionable underground films with a group of people. You could just rent them. The VCR dramatically changed the nature of cult films. Since a midnight theatrical attendance was no longer required, many cult films found themselves on video shelves in small towns across the nation, allowing these titles to reach a whole new legion of cult recruits. Strangely enough, eliminating the cult screenings at midnight and kind of giving everyone access to view these things in their own home drastically increased the cult surrounding many of these media. Numerous single screen movie palaces couldn't afford to stay in business now that the clientele could watch any movie they wanted on their own couch. And as the movie palaces closed down, they were often replaced with giant multiplexes Enormous complexes with multiple screens showing eight different films simultaneously. And this posed a new problem for cult media since instead of independent owners who were happy to show underground films at midnight, the multiplexes were owned by corporations that mostly work with studio pictures. Midnight screenings and art houses became much harder to come by. But cult films still flourished on VHS. The box covers, the weird art. This is how many of us now, cringe, middle-aged adult fans found cult movies, myself included. The movies that I came to love and that became kind of my my most um, influential movies, I found lurking on the shelves at my local mom and pop video store. And we rented them and shared them and celebrated them and still celebrate them today. Plus, you could always order movies from companies and spread cult media via the bootleg market, which was booming in the 1980s. Many of the obscure international horror titles that I still appreciate are ones that I first discovered through companies in the back pages of Fangoria. In the back pages of Fangoria, there used to be these classifieds where people would post things like, you know, thousands of hard to find horror titles, international gore, crazy stuff you've never seen before. Just um, And you would mail a letter requesting a list. And so then they would send you back via the mail, a Xerox list of all the movies that they had copies of and how much they wanted for each of them. Most of them, I remember being like five to $10. And then you would circle the ones that you wanted and put in a check and mail it back. And then a couple of weeks later, a giant box of bootleg VHS would arrive on your doorstep. And many of these may have been 10th generation and not look so good, but this is how I saw the Guinea pig series. This is how I saw a lot of Giallo titles. This is how I first watched Coffin Joe was through these kind of bootleg companies that were sending VHS copy VHS tapes out that were ones that maybe don't exist at your mom and pop video store. There was also the concept of swapping media. The idea, um, and a lot of this we saw in cassette tapes at the time, the idea of making cassette tapes that you could kind of now, the media was in our own hands that we could kind of remaster it and mix it up however we wanted to. And in this, as soon as people realized that they could take two VHS players and copy VHSs, it was all over. People found ways around copy guard. There was constantly kind of outsmarting the industry in that regard. And so a lot of the movies that I came to know and love as kind of a cult media was videotapes that people handed me that may have been like 10th generation, but there was something really special about viewing them in this way. Like it was something that I wasn't supposed to see that I couldn't rent at Blockbuster. This is how I first saw the movie Stuntman. Um, I remember Jessica White, the Dancing Outlaw, the original video of Jessica White being passed all around my high school. Everyone watched that. And this is long before um, they made a TV show and a movie about him. It was just somebody's like little short documentary on him being passed around on a 10th generation VHS tape. This is also how I saw tons of weird short films. There was just a culture of passing weird films around on VHS tape. A perfect example of this and how it did become a cult phenomenon from this would be the single VHS tape I received of South Park Spirit of Christmas um, cartoon, which was passed around my high school from student to student. We all watched it, the original South Park Spirit of Christmas cartoon. And we all made copies and then passed it on to other people. At this time, few people in the media industry had ever heard of South Park, and it would still be another three years before Comedy Central would take notice of the growing cult and give the creators of it a show. At this point in time, the VHS tape that was being so excitedly passed around was a single cartoon made by a group of unknown amateur cartoonists. A cult fan base was brewing as the tape was getting traffic and eyeballs and endless copies were being dubbed and dubbed again and passed all over different high schools and colleges in America. And by the the time that Hollywood took notice to this cartoon's kind of rhizomatic cult that had developed, the tape had been traveling from hand to hand for over three years. When the South Park TV show was finally um, airing on Comedy Central, legions of fans had already been created and were so excited to see it and watch it because we'd all seen that bootleg VHS tape. The 1990s ushered in A whole new shift in movie trends While studio blockbuster films had Really dominated the 1980s And the early 1990s, the late 1990s saw the shift back To independent filmmaking. With the pack Being led by folks like Quentin Tarantino And the Coen brothers, indie Filmmakers were all nodding back To prior decades and the films That gave them their influences. Many Like Quentin Tarantino, nodding at Grindhouse and exploitation and sexploitation Films of the 1960s and 70s. And this led hungry masses of film fans to seek out these obscure titles, thus creating cults around particular subgenres of exploitation films. And we also, in the 1990s, see people looking back at these exploitation films from the 1970s and truly kind of looking at them with appreciative eyes, saying, yes, these were good films. These were not throwaway garbage. Doris Wishman, who was an exploitation filmmaker during the 60s and 70s, did multiple interviews just before her death where she discussed how, for decades, no one even knew she made films. She didn't talk about it at all. And, you know, she just thought her films had fallen off the face of the earth. And then seemingly overnight, fans began calling her and visiting her house and writing her letters. And she spoke about how it just all seemed to come out of nowhere, that she went from being this forgotten exploitation filmmaker to suddenly being a cult hero. Additionally, a few independent movie houses that had survived the multiplex boom began to revive the Midnight Movie in the 90s. Oftentimes, these were older films from earlier Midnight Movie runs like the works of David Lynch and Jodorowsky, but these were now being screened for a whole new generation of cult movie fans. And many theaters screened newer arthouse films coming from the now booming independent markets and quirky international titles that would have otherwise been quickly lost in the direct-to-VHS and DVD distribution markets. Standard cult movies from the 1990s and early 2000s include "But I'm Not a Cheerleader," about a gay suburban cheerleader; "Battle Royale," which is a modern Lord of the Flies tale; and "Train Spotting," which was a Scottish heroin addict tale. And as the internet became a standard in most U.S. homes in the mid to late 1990s, the web became the prime way to spread not just information but also cult media. Now. Indie shorts with hyperlinks were passed from person to person. Internet cartoons were sent to hundreds of thousands of people within a single click. And independent microfilms have found grassroots ways to reach potential cult films through social marketing. And when we see social marketing come into fruition with MySpace, suddenly the whole idea of cult media can actually be viewed online. Where you're suddenly looking at how things are liked and shared. And when videos are posted, you can see the type of response that they get. And this only increased as we went to Facebook and YouTube, and suddenly we are looking at views and looking at shares. Cult media found the ideal way to extend its roots to propagate fans and create literal followers. The studios quickly took notice of the amount of marketing that was taking place online. And studios also noted how ravenous cult films were about owning merchandise online and celebrating these media. Being extremely dedicated to the media, these fans were compelled to purchase every version of the film that was released, every action figure, a closet full of branded clothing and anything else that was stamped with whatever the media was. Cult media was making a fortune. And so by the mid 2000s, studios began hiring special marketing teams whose sole job it was to create ravenous cult following bases around whatever new media they were coming up with. This was in complete contrast to the way that cult media functioned in past and how it was created and then propagated within the fan base rather than within the filmmaker or the studio. The marketing teams were now searching for ways to synthetically generate cult followings for upcoming movies and TV shows. And they were also looking for ways to get the fans to keep doing it themselves. How do we create ravenous fan bases so that a lot of the marketing is done by the fans for the show? The cult creation, or kind of the fan base formulation, um, which is what marketing firms often call it, has been a vital part of the media making industry for the past decade or two. The approach and technique that they use to make these ravenous fan bases are considered long before the media is often ever created. It's all about how you can market it online. Oftentimes the grassroots marketing offensive will be taking place while the film or TV show is still being filmed. So it's in a media product's best interest to try to create a cult following now before the media ever comes out. So this is in reverse of how it used to be, whereas we used to create the media and then it had to fall asleep and then it was rediscovered. They now seek out to create a cult following for it before it even comes out. A great example of this is Snakes on a Plane from a couple of years ago where they were creating this hype, this kind of media following around it. And so it's all about trying to generate that before the product ever comes out now. That's not to say we don't have traditional cult media. But it does raise the question, which I've heard several times over the past years, is cult media dead? If now media cults are being created before the media is ever released or they're trying to create it as the media is being released, is cult media dead? If you can access everything online, everything is cult media dead. An example of this is that um, a couple of years ago. I wanted to see this um, made-for-TV horror movie called The People Across the Lake. And it never really been released anywhere. It was impossible to find. It never really made it to VHS or DVD at the time. And so I posted up on probably Facebook, you know, hey, does anybody have a copy of this? I I really want to see it. And within seconds, people started sending me links to it on YouTube that it had already been uploaded to YouTube. The same thing happened a couple of years ago when I was looking for another really obscure title called. Atropados. And immediately after I posted, people started sending me links to it, not even on YouTube. It was on international sites. But if everything exists, In some capacity that we were able to access at a moment's notice, is cult media dead? And if the current market is synthetic, is it dead? And I say it is far from it. We are actually moving in the other direction. We are at the height of discovering movies. This is one of the most cult-savvy moments in media history so far. We are not only having a celebration of older titles, a celebration and rediscovery of older titles through things like Scream Factory, Severin, Vinegar Syndrome, all of these companies that are booming by kind of giving us these retro screenings of movies that we may have missed from long ago, as well as beautiful updated editions of movies that we know and love but maybe haven't watched in a long time. We're also seeing new cult phenomenon emerge on VOD. We're seeing movies and TV shows be rediscovered by different audiences and kind of get their own cult responses on VOD. So things like um, the taking of Deborah Logan or The Last Shift, they became huge on VOD. And so the VOD market and kind of people spreading it by word of mouth is what's really pushing these forward. Even just now, since I started recording this podcast, I got a text from one of my friends asking if I'd been watching the show Marianne on Netflix. Marianne, I have not seen it yet, but that it has just spread like a cult phenomenon because I saw three other tweets about it today. Not something that I saw advertised, but it spread by word of mouth. And now I'm excited to watch it. So no, cult cinema is not dead. We are at the height of it. We also still have midnight movies. We have movie marathons. And one of the most beautiful things that we have in excess now is conventions. We have media conventions all over the place. Star Trek, Supernatural, Walt Disney. They have the D3 convention. We have comic book conventions. We have fan expos and we have horror conventions everywhere. And these are just giant celebrations of cult fandom and they're beautiful. So as I end tonight's show... I highly recommend that all of my listeners go out and seek some type of communal cult experience. Celebrate the media that you love. If you're listening to this show, you're obviously passionate about horror. So go find some type of communal group to celebrate it with this holiday season. See a midnight movie. See a marathon. There is something transcendent about watching a movie with others in the theater. Go to a horror convention. Go to a haunted experience. Be proud of the media that you celebrate and get outside and meet others who do as well. Have a great night. Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Passetta, executive producers Dallas Sonier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safavimer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording, design, and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Weinert, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.